0: Good morning, Element Church. I wanna welcome you this morning. My name is Adam Young, I'm the lead pastor here. And I wanna welcome you not only to Element Church, but to the second to last week of our series, titled Broken Saviors, as we take a journey and have been taking a journey through the book of Judges. Now, if you wanna follow along this morning, as Nick mentioned a minute ago, you can do so in the Bible app. If you already have that app on your phone, then you can open it up, go to the menu, go to live events, and your phone already knows you're at Element Church, or you can scan this QR code, and it'll just open up the event in your web browser, and all the scriptures that we're gonna cover this morning will be laid out there for you, as well as uh, links to our connection cards, to our prayer request form. Uh, For those of you who are parents and you have preschoolers or elementary uh, kids in the classroom, there's also a link to our Parent Connection newsletter where you can find out all the information about what your kids are learning, as well as have some uh, ways that you can connect that story to daily life during this week with your kids, uh, whether you're talking over dinner or riding in the car. So we are actually talking about the last judge who's mentioned in the book of Judges. Now, when you hear the word judge, if you're unfamiliar, don't think of our modern uh, judicial system and uh, an older person who's wearing a robe. In this time frame, the judge, a judge was a deliverer. So that might even be a better word for what we're talking about. We're talking about deliverers that God sent to his people to help them in a time of need. This is the last judge that's talked about in the book of Judges. Um, We get more details about this judge. There's more uh, real estate within the book devoted to this judge than any of the others. And that's because the judge we're gonna talk about today in many ways represents us and represents our story. And it represents the nation of Israel and the challenges that they went through uh, in their journey. Today we're talking about the story of Samson. And Samson, his story is famous for its potent mix of sex and violence and death and power. Um, It's almost like a Hollywood blockbuster summer hit, except for after this story, instead of walking out, feeling like you have a new workout soundtrack to download and like you could fight a stranger in a back alley, this story's gonna leave us sort of discouraged and depressed about the condition of the human heart. There's no hero in this story today. Instead, we find a violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally immature and selfish man. Now here's what we're going to do today. Unlike previous weeks, as we've been walking through and talking about these judges, we are not going to spend too much of our time focusing on the sins and the flaws of Samson. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, it's sort of been there, done that. We've talked so much about the failures and the flaws of the judges, of these delivers, of these national leaders throughout the book um, that we've already spent several weeks where we kind of came to the conclusion at the end of our message that like people just suck. So we've kind of already concluded that. The other reason that we're not gonna just focus on his flaws is because there are some unique themes that we see in Samson's story that we haven't seen yet. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on some of those unique differences and allow them to speak to us this morning. And so we're gonna begin our story talking about Samson in Judges chapter 13, and we'll begin in verse one. And it says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, if you've been a part of this study with us over the last several weeks, this phrase will be very, very familiar to you. In Judges, we're in this continuous downward spiral, this this cycle that won't stop, where the people of Israel rebel against God and his commandments, God gets angry. He he allows their enemies in the surrounding nations to come and attack them and oppress them and cause all kinds of trouble. The people recognize their sin and their failure. They cry out to God. God hears them. He sends a judge or a deliverer to set them free. We have a season of peace and worship. And then the judge dies and We start the cycle all over again. And every time we've started this cycle, we've started with the same phrase, that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is starting to sound like familiar territory. It's almost like at this point, Israel's cycle, their pattern of rebellion and idolatry, it's almost like it's become permanent. At this point in the book of Judges, we're almost ready to just kind of give up on Israel. To make matters worse, this is the longest and worst oppression that the Israelites have faced thus far in the book. But there's something missing. What's missing? Now, that's rhetorical. You don't have to feel any pressure to raise your hand or say anything out loud. But if you've been with us in this study for the last six weeks, what's missing? Well, what's missing this time is that the people don't cry out for help. Nowhere in this story, in Samson's story, as a judge. Do we ever see the people acknowledge their failures and ask God for help? What we see in this story, and especially in chapter 15, is that the people have just grown accustomed and accepted the fact that the Philistines, this foreign army is just going to oppress them and they don't even try to do anything about it. No one is stepping up to the plate to lead the nation or bring about peace or freedom. They've just grown comfortable and complacent. Then we go to verse two. There was a certain man of Zora of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. Now, if you have any experience reading the Bible, anytime we're introduced to a woman who can't have children, that should ring bells in your head that God's about to do the impossible. God's about to do something no one expected. And so here's how the story continues in verse three. And an angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So, an angel comes to announce to this woman that God is going to bless her and give her a son. That's a significant moment in this woman's life. Because in this time frame in history, there aren't 401ks, there's no social security. Your hope in the future was built upon having children who could provide and care for you when you grew old. The whole structure of the nation of Israel centered around the local family. And so to not have children was an embarrassment. This is great news that the angel comes to deliver. Then we get this interesting phrase here that the child shall be a Nazarite. Now that's a little odd. And for most of us, that probably doesn't ring a lot of bells, But the Nazarite vow is something that's talked about earlier in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter six. And there were three components of the Nazarite vow. You never cut your hair, shave your head. You don't drink anything from the vine and that includes alcoholic and non-alcoholic. So it'd be grape juice and wine. And you are to touch nothing that has died. Now, let me explain why. First of all, this is a short term, a temporary vow that someone would make as a way of devoting themselves to God's loyalty. Usually it was done when someone was in a difficult situation and they were seeking God's help. They wouldn't shave their head, cut their hair, or drink any alcoholic drink as a symbol that they were sort of in training and their devotion to God, that they were gonna allow nothing to distract them from being solely focused on God and God alone. That, That they would touch no dead animal, no unclean thing, that's actually what was required of the priests who served in the tabernacle. They were not allowed to touch a dead animal to maintain their own ceremonial cleanliness. And so here it was another symbol that the person who was taking this Nazarite vow was was living, was adopting this cleanliness to live in the full presence of God. But this is a short-term thing. This is not something you would do forever. This is something that you would do for a short-term as a way to prepare yourself to really seek after God. Fasting is something that Christians even today will maintain. Some of you participate in Lent and are participating in it now. So you might have given up chocolate or alcohol or social media or something to help focus more of your attention on the Lord as you're preparing for Easter. Some Christians will fast from food for 24 or 48 or 72 hours as a way to just solely devote themselves to the Lord. It's something done with intention. Now, sometimes we do things that maybe aren't so intentional but then we try to label them. You know, like if you're too, eat, too lazy to eat breakfast, you just call it intermittent fasting and then it sounds cool and healthy and trendy. This is not that. This is intentional devotion to, to set aside things that you want or need to focus solely on the Lord. And so God says that is how this baby boy is going to live to live devoted to me. So, no alcohol, really, no fruit of the vine, which would include grape juice too. But so no drink, no touching of dead things, and no cutting of hair, because he will be solely devoted to me. So the woman tells her husband, and he doesn't believe her. So, instead, so they pray, and they say, okay, God, if you're really doing this, will you send the messenger again? Because he's, he's not buying into it. So God answers their prayer, sends a messenger to the husband to confirm what his wife experienced, and they prepare for a baby boy. At the end of chapter thirteen, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him, uh, to stir him in Manaheeah Dan between Zorah and Eshtol. Now here is what's interesting: for all other judges in the book of Judges, um, we see that Israel, the nation was in conflict. They were being oppressed. Their, Their enemies were coming and attacking them and they needed someone to bring deliverance, to bring freedom, to bring salvation. But here we see a new kind of problem which we have not seen at this point in the book of Judges. And it's going to require a new kind of deliverer. Israel had no conflict with the Philistines. They weren't asking for God's help and they weren't even seeking it out for themselves. No one in Israel was stepping up to be the deliverer, to be the leader Israel needed. So God was going to have to call one, a deliverer, a judge. He was going to have to call one from birth. God will have to send this judge himself And what special plan does God have for Samson? This time, in large part, Samson's role as a judge is not to bring freedom from conflict, but to create conflict. Israel faces their greatest threat. This time, it's no longer the threat of elimination by extermination like they had experienced in the past when these other armies would march into town and try to destroy them. This time, they faced a threat of extermination by assimilation. That they had just decided to accept their lot and they were just going to assimilate into the Philistine culture. Assimilation is always the greatest threat to God's people. The greatest threat for you and I The real danger is not persecution from the outside world. The real danger is that we would just assimilate into the outside world and one day find ourselves being no different than anyone else. It's not elimination through extermination that's the real threat. It's elimination through assimilation. So God gives Samson supernatural strength and power knowing that Samson is going to use it in sinful and selfish ways, but God is going to use that to create conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines. And so what we're gonna do is, in order to talk about Samson's story, and it covers four chapters, and so we have to summarize quickly, I'm gonna use the three points of the Nazarite vow that he was to live under to show the progression of Samson's downfall and the way that God used his downfall to accomplish his ultimate purposes. And the first part of the Nazarite vow that we see is that Samson is not supposed to drink anything from the vine. And in chapter 14, we see the beginning of his downfall because what Samson does is he adopts a well-known Philistine practice called a mistah. That Miztah is an ancient word for a week long, a seven-day alcohol bender. It is the extreme party of all parties that the Philistines were, pop, were known well for. Samson finds a young Philistine girl that catches his eye and decides he wants to marry her, despite the fact God had already ordered his people not to marry people of other faiths. Because as we've already seen in the book of Judges, the moment that you start rubbing shoulders with someone of another faith in that kind of intimate way, it draws your heart away from God. So to celebrate his engagement, Samson throws a week-long alcohol bender. Just a party of all parties. As a part of this party, he gets so hyped up that he makes a bet with 30 Philistine men that he, he can give them a riddle that they'll never be able to solve. If he wins, each of them owe him uh, essentially a really nice suit. If he loses, then he will owe each of them, all 30 of them, a really nice suit. So he gives them the riddle and they can't figure it out. But because they're not going to lose to this Israelite, they go to his wife-to-be and say, basically, hey, give us the answer or we'll kill you. So she manipulates Samson into giving her the answer. She goes and tells them the answer to this riddle. And they come to Samson at the end of the party and say, we figured it out. Well, now Samson's in a bind. And here's the first instance where we see Samson using the gift God gave him of strength and power for his own selfish, sinful ways. So he takes his power and his strength and he kills 30 Philistine men, takes their clothes so that he can make good on his debt. After this, he's so frustrated that he doesn't even move in with his wife, he goes back home to his parents. Then we turn the page chapter 15. And we see Samson breaking the second part of his Nazarite vow, the touching of anything unclean or dead animal. So Samson eventually decides he's going to return because he wants to be with his wife, But he had been gone so long that when he gets to where she's living with her parents, he finds out that his father-in-law thought Samson, because he was so angry because of this bet and killing Philistines, that Samson was never coming back. So he actually gave his daughter in marriage to someone else. Samson was so angry that through a bit of trickery, he sets fire to the Philistines' crops and farmland. You can imagine how they responded to that. So they go to chase him down as he's hiding. Here's how we find out that the Israelites really had started to assimilate into the Philistine culture. Because the Philistines come to get Samuel, they don't know where he's hiding, but the Israelites do, because he's hiding in their territory. And so they come to Samson and they're saying, and they say, hey, you're causing us problems. We had it good with the Philistines and now they're angry at us because of you. And you're rocking the boat. So we need you to come with us. We're gonna hand you over to them. So Samson says, just promise me you won't be the ones to kill me. And they're like, no, 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 no. We'll just turn you over. We'll, we'll let them decide what to do with you. So they tie him up with two ropes. And once they hand him over to the Philistines who had come to arrest and take him into, uh, into captivity, Uh, Samson, in his strength, breaks the ropes that have bound him. He picks up the jawbone of a donkey, and he kills everyone who had come to arrest him. And then we move to chapter 16. And here we find Samson breaking the third piece of his Nazarite vow, the cutting of his hair. At this point, you can imagine how long Samson's hair was. He hadn't cut it since the day he was born. But in chapter 16, Samson falls in love with another Philistine woman a uh, woman named Delilah. Insert your song that's about to start playing in your head now. So the Philistines come to Delilah because she's one of their own. She's a Philistine. And they say, hey, we will each give you a thousand pieces of silver if you can just get Samson to tell us what makes him so strong. Why does every time we try to, to capture him or subdue him, he, he destroys us. There's nothing we can do. Tell, have him tell you what it is that makes him so strong. And so Delilah seduces Samson in in the bedroom at late at night, she says, Samson, tell me what? What is it that makes you so strong? And what is it that would make you weak? So Samson lies to her and he says, Well, if you tie me up with a bowstring, I can't break that. So when he falls asleep that night, she ties him up with a bowstring and she wakes him up yelling, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are coming. And as the soldiers come in, he breaks the bowstrings and he kills those who had come to arrest him. She's upset. He lied to her, but the next night she tries again. Just tell me, what is it that would make you weak? Samson says, well, it's not really bowstrings; It's ropes, but they've got to be brand new ropes. They can't have ever been used before, and so that night when he falls asleep, she ties him up. In the middle of the night, she says, Samson, Samson, wake up. The Philistines are coming, and as the soldiers march in, he breaks the ropes, and he kills the soldiers again. She's a little more upset now. Samson, why do you keep lying to me? Just tell me what it is that makes you so strong. What what, what is it that would make you weak? He says, well, if you tie my hair, I won't be able able to do anything. So he falls asleep and she ties his hair in knots. She wakes him up. Samson, Samson, the Philistines are coming. And as the soldiers march in, he unties his hair. And what do you know? kills the soldiers. I'm not sure what's more surprising at this point in the story that Delilah is so upset that that her lover hasn't fallen for her obvious tricks or that Samson's dumb enough to actually come to the point where he'll tell her where his strength lies. So on the fourth attempt he tells her I've never cut my hair, but if you cut my hair, I won't have any strength left. So that night when he falls asleep, she cuts his hair. She yells out, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are coming. And this is what happens. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, chapter 16. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him and the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shekels. And he ground at the mill in the prison. At this point, the third and final part of his Nazarite vow had been broken. See, there's two problems here. One is that Samson never really thought that his strength was God's strength. Deep down, he really thought it was his. So he didn't think it would actually matter if he cut his hair because he didn't think his strength came from God. He thought it was all his own. What might be one of the saddest verses in this whole book is that he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Lord's strength had been taken from him and he didn't even know it. So the Philistines throw another one of these week-long benders and festivals to their god, Dagon. They brought Samson out to mock him, to make fun of him, to laugh at him, and to remind themselves that they had defeated the mighty Samson and that their god had defeated Samson's god. And after they had tied Samson to some of the pillars in Dagon's temple, where they were all there to party and worship, it says, then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once. O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And so in this final moment, God renews Samson's strength strength, just long enough that he can pull the pillars of this temple down and the temple falls and kills everyone there, all the Philistines in attendance and Samson himself. There's a couple lessons for us to learn in the story of Samson. And here's the first one. That God saves on his own doing. We don't earn it. The Israelites didn't even ask for a deliverer. They had gotten so complacent that they didn't even think they needed to be saved. God sends a savior even when one, none was asked for. And in this story, we see that God uses a flawed leader and his sinful passions to carry out his will because the movement of God is based upon his grace, not our works. God doesn't move because we have earned it, because we're good enough, because we're better than someone else. God moves on his own accord and gives his grace freely as he decides to. We don't earn God's strength. We don't earn God's gifts. We don't earn God's blessings. We do not earn our own salvation. God saves and he alone gets the glory. Here's how the New Testament would put it. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace through faith and even the faith that we need must be given to us by God. God saves on his own doing. We don't earn it and we don't deserve it. Here's lesson number two. Gifts from the Spirit are not the same as fruit of the Spirit. It is entirely possible to be gifted by God to do a task or be used by God to accomplish His purpose in the world and to be spiritually and morally bankrupt. Just because God uses you does not mean that He approves of what you're doing. You can do all kinds of great things on the outside and go to church, give money. Serve, be kind, read your Bible, wear cheesy Christian t shirts. You cannot cheat on your spouse or your taxes and still be very wicked and broken inside. God chooses when and where and how and to whom He gives His gifts to accomplish his purpose. We don't control the gifts that God gives, but what we are called to is not to focus on the gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. What God is after is not just obedience to a set of rules, some kind of law. What God is after is our hearts. And that by his grace, our hearts would be transformed to reflect his nature and character. Do not be impressed with yourself or with someone else because of the gifts that they possess. Be encouraged and motivated by the fruit that they display in their lives. And here's a third lesson. Sometimes, before God delivers us from conflict, he must first create conflict. Maybe the kindest thing God can do for you right now is to create tension in your life where there used to be comfort and complacency. Those areas of our lives that we've gotten so comfortable with, we don't even recognize anymore our own sin and rebellion and idolatry. And maybe the kindest thing that God could do for you is to create conflict in your life. The Israelites were complacent, they didn't ask for a Savior, they didn't seek a Savior, they didn't think they even needed a Savior. So before God would start the process of delivering them from the oppression of the Philistines, he had to start by creating conflict. That's how he used Samson, was to create conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines, where there was none. Look what Jesus taught in John chapter 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The process to new everlasting life is death. It's death to our own way of doing things. It's death to trying to be our own little God's. We die to those things. As Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, we have been crucified with Christ so that we no longer live, but Christ now lives in us. Sometimes we grow complacent. Sometimes God needs to step in and kill some things in our lives so that we can learn more and more to be dependent upon him. I want to close with some reflections. As this is the last judge, Samson is the last judge mentioned in the book. Um, Next week, we'll conclude um, our study in the book by talking about how dark things get in Israel. Ultimately, what it's going to do is it's going to prepare us for the only true savior that's ever come. Because every one of these deliverers in the book of Judges was just a broken savior. They couldn't bring everlasting peace. They couldn't bring true freedom. They couldn't defeat sin and death. And so as we prepare for Easter, we're reminded that there's only one real savior. But the story of Samson in many ways provides a counterpoint between what a broken savior and what a real savior looks like. Here's some of the similarities and differences between Samson and Jesus. Both Samson and Jesus were born into an impossible situation by the miracle of God. Samson to a barren woman, Jesus to a virgin. But you see, Samson was born under the law. Samson was born into that Nazarite vow and rules. Jesus came to deliver us from the law. Both Jesus and Samson were born as a rescuer and deliverer to those in bondage and trouble. Samson brought momentary and temporary relief, but Jesus brought eternal, everlasting relief. Both Jesus and Samson were given incredible strength through the indwelling spirit of God. Samson used his strengths and gifts for himself. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve. Both Samson and Jesus were betrayed by someone they cared about. Samson was betrayed because of his pride, Jesus was betrayed because of the pride of others. Both Samson and Jesus were beaten, tortured, and put on display for others to mock. Samson was tortured as a result of his own sin. Jesus was tortured as a result of our sins. Both Samson and Jesus died with their arms outstretched. Samson's death brought death to many others. But Jesus' death brought new life to all who would believe on him. What we need is a real savior. Jesus is the one we turn our hearts and our attentions to. No human leader will ever be able to bring real freedom and deliverance and peace in our lives. There's only one who can do that. And his name is Jesus.